Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv. I'm Nandini, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Dhruva Jayashankar with us. Dr. Jayashankar is a fellow in Foreign Policy Studies at Brookings, India, and the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. He is also a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute in Australia. His research examines India's role in the international system and the effects of global developments on India's politics, economics, and society. Previously, Dr. Jayashankar was a Transatlantic Fellow with the German Marshall Fund in Washington, D.C. from 2012 to 2016. There, he managed the India Trilateral Forum, a regular policy dialogue involving participants from India, Europe, and the United States. Dr. Jayashankar holds a bachelor's degree in history and classics from McAllister College and a master's degree in security studies from Georgetown University. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jayashankar. Thank you. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a point in their life where they had to pivot or adjust in their professional or personal life. Could you share a moment with us? Well, I think I've had so many pivot moments that it's my, my professional life has been more of a pirouette than anything else. But I actually am a product of a liberal arts education. Uh, I went to a small liberal arts college, much like uh, CMC in Pomona, uh, in Minnesota, actually, in McAllister, uh, at McAllister College. And I... Um, I studied, I majored actually in classical archaeology and history, uh, and I minored in geology. And these are uh, largely uh, issue, issues I don't work on anymore, but I, I do feel uh, better off for having studied such a wide array of subjects. Um, and, you know, I studied everything from uh, English literature to music theory and, and uh, film criticism and, and all sorts of other things uh, while I was in, in, in college. Um, my big passion uh, towards the end of my college, though, was, was journalism. And I initially wanted to uh, go on to work as a journalist. And uh, I ended up having a very strange inflection point, which is I one of the first people I met when I was trying to find a job was uh, somebody who uh, had worked as a journalist, but who was at the time heading a think tank. And he suggested to me that uh, uh, because I was from India that I should uh, consider uh, working as an intern on a project that they were starting on US-India relations. Uh, at the time, I wasn't too enthusiastic about it, but I came back to them eventually, uh, and that was my first internship. And since then, I uh, really uh, changed my focus um, and uh, ended up becoming somebody uh, who worked on international relations, uh, first of all, uh, not something I had an academic background on initially, uh, and then uh, focusing on India, which uh, until that point was not an area of academic interest for me, but just happened to be where I was from. Uh, and subsequently, of course, I went back to graduate school, um, uh, learned things later that I, I probably should have known at the start, uh, and, and developed uh, my career. So it was often these chance encounters like that that actually end up being uh, critical uh, turning points in your life in hindsight. So you're from India. What drew you to a liberal arts education in America? Well, uh, frankly speaking, it was a scholarship opportunity was a big part of it. Um, and um, I did have, I, I studied, I did um uh, the International Baccalaureate program when I was in high school. And uh, that's also very varied. Uh, you have to take, you know, social sciences, sciences, uh, languages, uh, maths, uh, science, and, and, and all that. Uh, and you have to do a lot of extracurricular activities as well. And so uh, a liberal arts uh, college actually seemed a good fit for somebody with, with that kind of academic background. And, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have uh, an issue that I was completely committed to at that time or that I felt that I, I wanted to be locked into. And uh, a liberal liberal arts education actually gave me the opportunity to explore different things, and many of those things I still have an interest in, and I realized I just didn't want to do that professionally, and and that's that's fine. That's uh, yeah. 
So that's that's what brought me uh, to uh, to a small liberal arts school. But do you see the kind of the fields you studied, history, classical archaeology? Do you see the insights you learned from that in your current professional work right now? Well, uh, I would say two ways. I mean, history definitely, and I think that still is some. Uh, I think a strong point and something that uh, I value greatly. Um, I think uh, applying history to contemporary. Um, contemporary politics, uh, including international politics, I think is, is um, necessary, in, in fact. But, uh, you know, in other areas, I would say two things. One, I think there are certain critical skills that you learn no matter what discipline uh, you learn, which is basically um, the um, ability to learn uh, in, in the broadest sense possible, the ability to analyze and think critically, and the ability to communicate your thoughts and ideas. And I think that that's something you can learn whether you study anthropology or whether you study uh, the natural sciences, for that matter. Um, and you can apply that in uh, different ways. And so I think I learned some of those skills, again, studying classical archaeology in Greece, you know, which is what I did spent my summers doing in, in college. Um, but you can apply a lot of those, that same, that same skill set, quantitative, qualitative research, um, uh, critical thinking, um, sort of an interdisciplinary approach to things. Uh, to something like international politics, which is what I study today. Um, I'd say the final point is sometimes the things you learn come up, uh, turn out to be useful in, in unexpected ways. Um, so one of my early jobs, actually, uh, I was hired because I could read Greek, uh, which is a product of uh, classical education. Uh, but I actually was, um, uh, somebody wanted me to translate some, some work from uh, ancient Greek into, into English. Um, but uh, that was only part of the job. The rest of the job involved um, uh, analyzing contemporary air forces, which is so. So it was actually in, in some strange ways. Uh, some some of the things you study end up uh, paying off in, in uh, later times. So recently, you you lectured at a university in New Delhi. Uh, so what has been the transition like for you, going from a researcher, like a, in a role as a researcher, to a lecturer? So I, I'm not a. I think I have the luxury actually of not being a, a full-time professor or a teacher. Um, I, I greatly admire people who do that, but it's not something I've I've actually done. Um, what I see myself doing a lot of times is actually communicating um, ideas and uh, trying trying some often failing, but trying to at least communicate com complexity uh, as well. And you can communicate that to different audiences in different ways. And students, I think, are one of those audiences, and that's why I actually really enjoy going to, uh, to universities um, and interacting with students in a variety of formats, uh, whether it's in the classroom and in, in, as part of proper courses or whether it's outside the classroom. Um, and I've done a lot of that both in India and in different places around the world as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think students are, are definitely one one constituency and uh, obviously a very important and influential one uh, because the students will, of course, go on to do bigger and better things. Uh, but I do a lot of that, again, not just with student uh, groups and not just at universities, but also with business groups. Um, I do a lot of uh, presentations, uh, also to policymakers as well. And one of the things I find is sometimes I have to uh, sh disseminate the same information, but how you do it completely changes. You have to pitch it to the right audience. Uh, you know, you have to t take into account what they already know. Uh, it's a waste of time repeating things that, that they know already. Um, and sometimes you have to do it in a very short amount of time. So I've had to do, for example, briefings to very senior officials, government officials uh, from different countries, and you have 20 minutes to 
capture a lot of information very neatly uh, to them. And it's uh, something that I've now been fortunate to have done for 10 years or so. And, and this, it's been a learning experience for me. Um, but it's uh, definitely something I enjoy doing. You mentioned that you do a lot of briefings to policymakers and you served on the Center for American Progress U.S.-India Task Force. What was that experience like for you? So uh, the U.S.-India Task Force was actually set up by the Center for American Progress. They had about 20 people, about roughly half from the U.S., half from India, uh, led by uh, former ambassadors from the two countries to, to each other's countries. Um, and the idea behind it was to sort of look at what should be on the agenda to to deepen U.S.-India relations. Uh, as part of that, we did um, interviews with people both in India and the United States, uh, including serving government officials in, in both countries. Um, and it was a consensus document. So the the people who made up the task force actually came from very different backgrounds. We had people who were come from came from a business background, uh, people who work on uh, development issues, uh, people who work on human rights. Um, and then people like me who worked on security, um, all working together. And so that meant that we often disagreed on issues as well. Uh, but the idea was to come up with, with some, some broad recommendations that could be useful uh, to the government. And we, we published the report, uh, I think, in January of this year. So as someone who kind of works in the field of foreign policy and um, international relations, how, what were the biggest challenges in that kind of diplomacy you mentioned with everyone disagreeing and trying to come together to form some concrete results. So, you know, I mean, I, I think something, an exercise like that is often um, useful only up to a point. Um, uh, and sometimes actually the deliberations are themselves useful, but the, the final, sometimes the final recommendations that we produce are our lowest common denominator. It's what, it's the base that we all agree on. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I think in some ways I have an easier job than most. I'm, I'm not a diplomat, I'm not a government official. And so um, I'm able to, in some ways, be a bit more, Frank and and my and what and sharing what I think is is uh, is correct, um, but uh, I've never actually fortunately been in a situation where you've had to reach uh, a hard compromise, and I think that's the job of diplo of, of professional diplomats and negotiators. So moving on to some of the recent uh, work you've published in some articles, an article you published about the changing nature of U.S.-India relations under Trump, you argued that India must continue to engage with the Trump administration on issues like counterterrorism and global governance. Do you think that India has and is doing enough to maintain a mutually beneficial relationship with the United States? So I think India has actually been very relatively speaking, very fortunate in the transition from um, President Obama to President Trump. Um, I think because India doesn't uh, doesn't fall neatly into one of two categories that have of, of countries that have been somewhat problematic. One are traditionally um, uh, inimical uh, relationships. So, you know, Iran, North Korea, to, a, to some degree, Russia and China. Um, and these, you know, in, in many cases have been quite problematic and, and fraught. And, and with, with North Korea in particular, we've had these radical reversals in, in, in uh, the relationship. The other set of countries that are having uh, facing challenges from Trump are traditional allies and trade partners. Uh, so countries like Mexico and Canada, uh, that part of NAFTA, but also Germany, uh, France, NATO allies. And there, I think the belief, you know, of, of the Trump of, of Trump and, and many of his advisors is that uh, they're free riding on um, American public goods, including security guarantees. And in, in the case of NATO, they're not doing their bit to share to, to burden share. Uh, and on on economic and trade issues, that they're taking advantage of U.S. openness, and it's not been reciprocal. So India's not been really at the brunt of either of those two lines of criticism. 
Um, and so, I, again, in, in relative terms, you know, I think India has been able to manage the transition reasonably well. And to give you just a few examples of how that's happened, you know, India has just been elevated by the Department of Commerce into a, a, a level, um, uh, basically, to access defense technology, which, which um, by, by the Trump administration. So they've they've actually improved India's standing in in, in their view. Uh, they've exempted India from sanctions, at least the U.S. Congress has exempted India from sanctions on Russia. Um, recently, the reports that India has been at least partly accepted from Iran-related sanctions as well. Um, and so we've seen in some ways, uh, at least on strategic issues, an acceleration of a convergence that actually start, took place in the last couple of years of the Obama administration under Trump. Uh, not too many other countries can say that there's been an acceleration of convergence in strategic views uh, from from the Obama to, to Trump. There are lingering differences, um, including on Iran, on Russia, on trade, to some degree on immigration. Um, but uh, you know, not uh, none of these are really you know all that significant, or, or, or I mean, they are significant, but they don't have. Uh, they're not going to bring down the relationship. Um, these will be differences that will have to be navigated. So again, in, in relative terms, India has not done too badly. Now, both Modi in India and Trump in the U.S. have been characterized as um, through their social media use and just through media in general. I'm curious as to what you see the role of media in international relations, foreign policy, and security, um, whether that be social media or just media in, as an institution in general. Right. So um, I think the two the two ways of looking at it, you know, one is it's a reality, um, and I'm a firm believer that on on certain technolo- technological developments, and not just in the recent past, but oh, in, in 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 longer history, in deeper history, that it's not possible to uh, turn the clock back. So the question is, how do you adapt to these new realities? So I think that that's one element. It's now, you know, so whether it's social media or, or, or new communication tools of various kinds, th- this is now a, rea- a reality that you have to contend with in, um, in international media, and we have to think about that. In another uh, way, I'm a bit skeptical, I mean, not, not just about the use of social media by leaders, um, but uh, in general on... The implication that social media has had on effective governance, uh, and actually a paper that I, a report that I did a few years ago, was uh, called into question. I think some of the optimism at the time uh, about what the implications of new uh, new digital technologies would be for improved governance. So this was this was uh, this came out shortly after the Arab Spring, and at least initially, people were much more optimistic about. Um, that Twitter would help promote democracy in places and like Tunisia and and, and like, um, and so I, I I struck a slightly more skeptical note and I, I used examples. I mean, this was based on research I did in India and Indonesia amongst other countries, where I found amongst other things, in fact, it was often minority groups that wanted more censorship online, um, and so again, uh, two. What, what in the United States are seen as two very fundamental rights, right? The f- right to, to freedom of expression and freedom of religion. In places like India and Indonesia, we're often in conflict with each other. Um, we're now seeing that play out in more actively, and I think some of those claims would not be as controversial today. But I, when I tried to share this with people in Silicon Valley, I think there was a lot of pushback from, from them because it didn't quite fit this narrative uh, that um, that social media would lead to to greater democratization and better governance. Can you expand on the point you made about how certain minor, minority groups and different countries viewed the abilities of social media to just kind of give them voices? 
Yeah, you know, so I, I think a number of, there have been a few uh, developments that have come as a result of um, uh, of what I what I call digital democracy. It's not in, in the way that uh, that term is often used. Um, but I think there have been a, f- a few um, unforeseen developments that have uh, complicated governance in general. And, and this applies to some degree also in the United States and in Europe as well. Um, one is it's led to there's been a sort of greater theatricality of politics, uh, and, and this by the way predated social media. I mean, this, this started really with cable news television, where, um, like I say, in the Indian Parliament, we're seeing walkouts from Parliament. You know, and and it's done basically because a, after Parliament became televised, there's now an incentive to 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 show this to your constituents back home who who can watch this live or watch it on the evening news. Uh, we didn't have this phenomenon of people walking out of Parliament beforehand. Um, so there is great. You know, you have sit-ins in on the floor of the House of Representatives. Again, so so the, the, there's been a greater theatricality in politics, which is not always a good thing. Um, you've seen greater polarization as well. Uh, a Facebook feed is a perfect example of uh, people filtering content to reinforce their own biases, right? Um, and so you have these echo chambers being created. Um, another another phenomenon is a sort of uh, maybe a variation of what's called the paradox of choice, which is people want now elected leaders who who have simple messages that uh, fit with their worldviews, and so uh, this has actually eroded. Um, uh, in fact, it's it's greater democratization has actually eroded uh, people's tr- kind of paradoxically er- eroded people's trust in uh, in compromise. Uh, and then, you know, I think the final uh, sort of element of this is, uh, in fact, that room for compromise, sometimes even the physical room has has changed, has, has, has diminished. So, uh, for example, um, U.S. elected representatives now spend less time in Washington than they used to. And this is really enabled by technology, the fact that it's very easy to fly back to their home constituency. So on the one hand, people have become more responsive to their electoral basis. So it's actually been an improvement in democracy, but it's paradoxically undermining democracy in these various ways. And I think this is something that's really I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure there are easy solutions to any of this, but it's certainly uh, a, a very uh, a, a set of phenomena that is very common to the United States, to Brazil, to Europe, to India, to Southeast Asia. Uh, so many democracies are facing these same pressures. The last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? So I, I, don't, I don't think there's an easy answer to this question, and certainly I don't have have one. But I would say I think you're really any, – anyone is fortunate if they can find um, a line of work, whether – and again, you not always be professional in, in the traditional sense, about which they are passionate, uh, which is um, rewarding to others or useful to others. Um, and you know, ideally, is also um, uh, rewarding uh, in in uh, you know in either financially or, or you know uh, uh, allows them to to survive. And I think it's it's very hard to check all of those boxes. But I think if you can find whatever it is that you do that that does check all of those boxes, that's some, so. And and I would say oh, finally, actually, something that you're good at as well. So if you can find something that you're good at that you're passionate about, that uh, is useful and that rewards you. Um, then I think that that's quite successful. Um, and it can be very different for different people. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Dr. Jay Shankud, for joining us. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Remember to stay hungry.